This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions and conclusions. Please talk to your healthcare team regarding your specific situation. Hello and welcome to the Speak Gyno podcast. I'm your host, Nee Gutenfelder. On today's episode, we're excited to have a special guest, Hillary Redwine, who is a 13-year ovarian cancer survivor. Hillary and I have known each other for over 10 years, but it wasn't until recently that we sat down to share our stories. We initially met through a local survivors event, and once we got to talking, we found out that we're actually neighbors. Um, it really goes to show that when we open up and have conversations, those that we can relate with really are closer to home than we may actually think. I wanted Hillary to share her story because I believe it will resonate with many people, but especially with young survivors and those who struggle with infertility. So thank you so much for being here, Hillary. Um, we're happy to have you here. Thank you, Nee. I'm excited to be part of this. Hillary, if we could start off with, if you could take us back to the beginning of your journey, how did everything get started? Well, I was diagnosed in 2007. I was 27, diagnosed with stage 1C ovarian cancer. The diagnosis for me came out of the blue. It was a shock, but looking back at it now, there were some issues that I had leading up to it, really with endometriosis and ovarian cysts, which the type of cancer that I had was caused by endometriosis, which is extremely rare. But when I look back at my history, there were some signs leading up to my diagnosis. The first time I really experienced an issue was when I was 23 or 24. I had a ruptured ovarian cyst caused, mm -hmm. um, it was just, it came on very sudden. It was a lot of pain. Um, I ended up in the ER Gosh. Uh, and that's when I found out that I had had the ruptured ovarian cyst and that was really the first time I had heard anything about endometriosis and, you know, the cysts and issues that it can cause. So that was, um, again, 20, 23, 24, and then about a year or so later, I had another ovarian cyst. It wasn't a ruptured cyst, but I was in quite a bit of pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like I knew that pain. I knew that type of abdominal pain on one side. So I ended up going to the ER again. And sure enough, it was another cyst. The doctor that I saw in the hospital ended up doing surgery to mm -hmm. remove it because it was large enough that it needed to be removed. And then he became my OB for a while. And so he was, you know, I saw him for my regular annual appointments, but he was also monitoring me for, for cysts and things. And then it was a couple of years later when I was 27 that I had, I had another cyst, started feeling, you know, some pain and he was monitoring it. It wasn't large enough that he felt like it really needed to be um, surgically removed at that point. But I do remember at one point I started having consistent abdominal pain. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, the pain on and off with my cycle that I was used to. It was consistent abdominal pain. And I remember just feeling very fatigued all the mm -hmm. time to the point that I just... I really knew something wasn't right. right. I would come home from work and I would fall asleep on the couch and I would just be tired all the time and that wasn't normal. So I ended up going back to him and I had to advocate for myself to get an appointment that day and get a sonogram. Again, he had been, he knew that I had the cyst. It had grown a little bit, but not to the point where he felt like surgery was an absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. His recommendation was to switch my birth control and come back in, you know, like a month or two and see, see how I was doing. But 
again, you just, I think we know our bodies better than anybody. So I knew something wasn't right. And I got a second opinion from another OBGYN. That doctor who ended up becoming my doctor that diagnosed me and my, my long-term OB, he felt like I had, in very, based on my symptoms, very severe endometriosis, mm-hmm. um, like maybe stage four endometriosis, which can cause infertility. Mm-hmm. And so he said, if you know my husband and I ever wanted to have children, his recommendation was that I have surgery sooner rather than later. And he said also that the cyst was, you know, it was at the point where it really should be removed. So I had surgery, I had laparoscopic surgery to remove the cyst and cauterize the endometriosis. Every, it was a outpatient procedure. Everything went as expected. But then it wasn't until the pathology report came back the next day and that's when I found out that I had cancer. Um, it was a shock. It was a shock for me. I think it was a shock for my doctor. I remember very clearly, I remember him calling me at home the next day and I was pretty out of it because I was on some pain medication from the surgery. Mm-hmm. He called, I thought he was calling to, to see how I was doing. I was, you know, I thought I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, how nice he's calling just, you know, to check on me. But he asked me if my husband was home and I said yes. And he said, can your husband get on the phone too? And even then I was still, you know, just out of it from the medication and mm-hmm. I didn't realize what was happening. I remember going into the room where my husband was and telling him it was the doctor and he wanted to talk to both of us. And I remember the look on my husband's face and um, just I knew I knew when I saw the look on his face that it wasn't going to be good mm-hmm. um, so we got on the phone and the doctor told me that the pathology report had come back that I had ovarian cancer and he referred me to a gynecologic oncologist mm-hmm. who I saw the next week and then from there was scheduled for surgery again, and that time it was a, a laparotomy, so the full abdominal incision. Mm-hmm. And the intent of that surgery was to remove my left ovary because that's the one that was cancerous and also to do a surgical staging to make sure that there was no cancer mm-hmm. anywhere else. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. But because of the stage, so I was, I was stage one, which was early stage, but I was stage one C, meaning that it was a, an aggressive, type of cancer and even though the pathology didn't find any other tumors or any detectable cancer, there was the possibility for microscopic cancer cells to still be there. And so because of that, I had four rounds of chemotherapy. Gosh, you went through a lot. Yeah. And it was it was a series of things that had happened. It wasn't just boom, you had cancer all of right. a sudden. Right. Would you be able to share, were there any additional challenges as you were adjusting to your new normal? Yeah, I would say after treatment, you know, new normal is a term that I think a lot of cancer survivors hear. I think it might be a space that really needs some more attention. You know, for me, I like I mentioned, my time frame from diagnosis to completing treatment was about four months. But in that four months, I was being seen by a doctor, I think every week, you know, there was some, there was some appointment, there was some medical test, something. And so you go from that to having a clear scan and they say, we'll see you in three months for your, for your next follow-up. That's not an easy adjustment because even though the treatment is, and, and all that is scary it's like you know you're being watched very closely so if something comes up it can be addressed immediately and then to not to go from that to you know we're not I'm not going to be doing anything for three months is a hard adjustment it was was for me 
anyway because the the fear of recurrence was so real you know every little ache and pain it's like you know is, is this is this cancer cancer is again it? is it you know is it, is it something else so that so that was hard for me you know and then trying to just adjust to life again to go back to work but not feeling a hundred percent you know I had chemo brain I had for a while I had issues with short-term memory and trying to figure out how to adjust to that so that was an additional challenge and then just just the just the recovery I mean because when when you go through chemotherapy you're putting poison into your body I mean mm-hmm. yes yes it's killing the cancer but it's also killing a lot of the good cells too and it takes it takes you time to recover from that so I feel like there was an expectation that I had on myself and I don't know if other people had the expectation of me or not but the expectation that I would be able to just bounce back and go you know right back into my life and pick up where I left off and that just is not the case it takes Mm -hmm. it takes time to adjust you're still dealing with the emotional repercussions of everything that happened the fear of recurrence um And so, you know, I joined a support group, I joined NOCC, I had a few appointments with a counselor Mm -hmm. to help me talk through it. Because for me, that was, and maybe it's not everybody's experience, but for me, that was a space along the continuum of care that could have used some more attention. Right. I, I definitely hear you on that because it is, when you're in treatment, it's one scan, a, you know, a test, you're being exactly. closely followed. And then once you are in remission, it's like you're set free. But right. then it's like you lose the security of seeing the doctor as, you know, as less frequently than before. That, I, I would say that's the term that you use, security, that's, that's exactly it. Even though it's scary what you're going through, there is security in knowing how closely you're being monitored. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Would you be able to share how long after treatment did you and your husband decide to try and have a child? Sure. So let me say, first off, I feel like I was I feel like I was fortunate, one from my OB and, and from my oncologist, that they had the foresight to talk to me about fertility. My oncologist's recommendation was because I was early stage, going into the surgery, he had said, you know, that he felt like that the cancer was contained to the cyst that I had. If that was the case, he could just remove my one ovary because as you know, often the treatment for ovarian cancer is a complete hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And if we, and that would preserve, you know, my ability to have children. I, I'm glad he had the foresight for that. He had to talk me into it a little uh-huh. bit because I was terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was a shock and I was terrified. And I think when you learn that there's, you have something in you, that has the potential to kill you. Mm-hmm. You just want it out. And so right. I was like, well, why why not just take it? Why not just take it all out? So, but I I was able to get to the point where I was comfortable with with his plan and I'm grateful that I was. That was part of the conversation going forward and then we really started trying 2 years after I finished chemotherapy mm-hmm. because he had all my oncologist had also told me that my highest chance to, of recurrence was within the first two years. So okay. I wanted to be completely out of that two year window um, and have a clean bill of health before we started trying to to have a child. So that was I think January of 2010 was my two year follow up and CT. And so once I knew all that was okay. I, we were ready to start trying. I talked to my OB about it, who, is, who was the one who diagnosed me. I was continuing to see him. And he, he ran fertility tests because he said with everything that I had been through, if there was going to be an issue, it would be better to know mm-hmm. early on than six months or a year down the line. And so the results of the fertility tests, were, there were a lot of, lot of red flags um, from that one 
my FSH, which is the follicle stimulating hormone, that was high, which I think means my would mean I would my body would have to be working overtime to produce follicles. Um, another one was that my was an AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone. It's a, a test that a blood test that can detect your ovarian reserve, and that was very low, almost non-detectable, which was mm-hmm. a big red flag. So we went straight from we went straight into infertility mm-hmm. treatment. I was referred to a reproductive endocrinologist by my OB. I actually saw three different ones initially before we chose uh, a fertility specialist to move forward with. And then the other thing being an ovarian cancer survivor, my oncologist had to okay any treatment that I had. So, you know, that was a little bit of a concern for me because when you're talking about pumping your body full of hormones, you know, ovarian cancer is an estrogen-based cancer. Right. And so that that was a concern. I didn't have, you know, unlimited chances that I could that I could try to do that. So we tr- we tried around my my doctor okayed around a fertility treatment, a fertility drug. So we tried we tried that to stimulate my ovary. I also only had one ovary to produce eggs. And it just it I just didn't respond. I didn't respond well to it. And so my doctor canceled that cycle and then you know we talked about next steps and options and that and he brought up the recommended recommendation to use an egg donor mm-hmm. um so that was one option or you know we could try we could try again doing ivf on my own and the first time that the idea of an egg donor was presented was very overwhelming to me i didn't know mm-hmm. anything about it you know what that what that would entail and so he was explaining it to me and it involves looking at at profiles of egg donors, looking at pictures, their medical history, personality profiles. And so he pulled out a book and he said, well, you would look through something like this. And I'm sitting there with my husband and it just felt all felt very surreal. I felt like we were looking at, it was almost like looking at dating profiles of women. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I just was not in a, I just was overwhelmed emotionally and was not ready to go there. So we put that on, you know, we talked about it. We, you know, knowing that that was an option, we put that on hold for a little while. Because the thing when you're dealing with infertility is that just there's so much uncertainty. And so when something doesn't work, it's hard to just jump right into the next thing. It's like you have to experience, you have to experience and grieve the loss of what didn't work, at least for me, before you, before we could move on to the, to the next thing. Um, and so we took a break. Um, throughout the journey, we took a few breaks. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I saw another fertility specialist to get another opinion. He looked over, you know, all my test results and every and everything, and he agreed my best chance, our best chance was with an egg donor, but also said, you know, I was, at the time I was 30 or 31, he said, it's not impossible that you can't get pregnant on your own. So mm-hmm. if you want to try, you can try. So we did, and we, you know, we, t- we took a break. We tried on our own, obviously didn't didn't work. A turning point, so I, I ended up going to another another doctor who was closer to me in Fort Worth and close, closer to my work. And we tried a couple of natural things, so not fall, not the hormone injections, but you know, more natural. We tried in, intrauterine insemin- insemination. We tried natural cycle IVF. Um, a turning point for me is when I was going to my OB for a regular checkup, and I mentioned the you know what was going on with the infertility treatment and everything, and he said, your best chance is with an egg donor. And he said, at the end of the day, if being, he's like, if, be, if, if what you want is to be a mom and to have a chance to carry a baby, this is your best shot. Mm-hmm. And so from there, 
it's like my heart and mind were in the right place to be able to to move forward um, mm-hmm. to be open to be to open it. to using a donor and so and so we did wow well I'm, I'm really glad that he had that conversation with you because yeah. you know who knows how long that that path would have gone just to right. be let down and all the struggles and everything that, right. that you and your husband had been through I know that in our previous conversation, you had mentioned that the infertility aspect of it, that was harder than the cancer treatment. Would you be able to elaborate? Sure. So for me, and let me let me say for an ovarian cancer survivor, I'm, I'm in, I think it's like the 25, maybe 25% of people who are diagnosed early stage. I don't know if that's the correct statistic, but as, as you know, most people who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed at a later stage because the symptoms are so vague. Right. Um, so I was fortunate that I was diagnosed at an early stage. And so I feel like I had a clear line of sight to to the end of the road for the cancer treatment when the when when the treatment was going to end you know I knew after surgery I was going to have four rounds of chemotherapy and then from there I would go into you know being monitored every every few months that's not to say that it took away the fear of recurrence mm-hmm. at all I think as a as a survivor I mean it certainly lessened over time you know but that's not something that ever completely goes away but I I was able to see the light at the end of the tunnel with cancer treatment, I was not able to see the light at the end of the tunnel for infertility. I just, I didn't know, you know, like when one thing didn't work, I didn't necessarily know what the next step we were going to take would be. And I didn't know, you know, how long the process was going to take. I mean, cancer treatment for me, from diagnosis to when I finished treatment was about four months. Mm -hmm. The timing for you know, from when we first started trying to have a baby from to when I gave birth to our daughter was five years. Mm-hmm. So, and so just the uncertainty with infertility and the, and the loss over and over again of things that didn't work um, mm-hmm. was really difficult. Yeah, definitely. I, I hear you on that and just, you know, the, the length of time and mm-hmm. just so many things that are out of control. Right. And just the fear, the loss, just the unknown, just a lot of things stacking yeah. on top of each other. Um, and I th- and I think being in a place where, you know, again, I was 30, you know, which is not really young to start having kids, but it's not the age that most, you don't see a lot of 30-year-olds in the, you know, seeing an infertility mm-hmm. specialist. So I think that was, that was hard. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to go into, um, throughout your journey and everything that you have been through, how has that impacted your relationship with your husband? It's brought us closer together. I think it can really, could have gone one or two ways. You know, when you deal with a crisis and everything we've been through, it can either push you apart or bring you closer together. And we've been fortunate that we've been able to lean on each other and it's brought us closer together. So um, my husband, Jared, and I, we've been together 22 years, married for 17. And you would think... You know, being together so long, you know somebody inside and out, but it's really, I think, I've, I've gotten to see how strong he is. He's incredibly, he has incredible emotional strength, and I don't think, you know, you can know that about somebody, but until you go through something so difficult, you really see it and experience it in a new way, and a couple of things, when I look back on just everything we've been through that stand out to me. One was after I was diagnosed, it was before 
I knew I was gonna lose my hair. It's amazing how they can like pinpoint when you're gonna lose your hair. And I know it sounds vain, but for me being a redhead, there's something about, you know, that's part of my identity. And so the hair loss was really, really difficult for me. So there was one point where I knew I had gotten my hair cut because I knew I was gonna lose my hair, but I hadn't lost my hair yet. And I, there was one night I was just feeling really insecure. Like you have these thoughts like, yeah, I was thinking, you know, are people gonna look at me differently? Are they gonna treat me differently? Will my husband still be attracted to me? You know, all, all these vulnerable feelings that are hard to express. And, and sometimes when you're dealing with that kind of insecurity, you push away the people who are closest to you. I tried to do that with mm -hmm. him and he wouldn't let me. He pushed back. He um, wanted to know what was wrong, what I was feeling, and something that surprised me when I told him is how he was able actually to relate to it. So he had a medical trauma when he was younger that impacted him physically, and he went through a lot of the same feelings. And he made me realize, you know, what I was what I was feeling was really it, it wasn't rational. I was just feeling very insecure. And he said, you know, do you really think anybody who loves you is going to treat you any differently or feel any differently about you because you don't have hair or because you know you're you're different and it made me realize you know no mm -hmm. the people that care about me are going to be there for me and then he was also he was the one who shaved my head so the night that I knew I was going to lose lose my hair so I had decided ahead of time that I wasn't going to just let my hair fall out mm -hmm. naturally like because I had heard you know horror stories of people waking up and it's like they see their hair on their pillow or they're in the shower and the clumps just fall and I knew I just I didn't want to experience that I wanted to have control over it so I knew I was going to shave my head Jared's the one who did who, who did it and the night that it happened we've been having a we were you know in the living room having a conversation I happened to run my hands through my hair and some strands came out and I knew that that was and then it's like it dawned on me okay this is the night it's gonna happen. And I remember I cut my hair even more. I remember looking in the mirror, cutting my hair, looking in the mirror while he shaved my head. And I mean, that's just, I just, I don't know why, but I had to go through it that way. Um, and you go through that with some, you go through something like that with somebody and it, you really, it brings you closer. And you, and I really saw, you know, and for him to be one, you know, I'm, go, I'm going through it, but he's the one who's doing it. And to be able to, to do that for me and be there and be able to hold it together was incredible. So, so there was that. And then just through everything we've dealt with, with infertility, he, he took on a supportive role. You know, he let me take the lead. He let me let, make the decisions when we were going through the process of choosing a donor and, you know, you look, or looking for, you know, what things do you want from, from a health perspective, from, you know, physical trait perspective, but something that was important to me that he was not important for him. I wanted to actually meet the donor because I couldn't, uh, I don't, a lot of times it's anonymous, you know, when you go through an agency, you, you do it on an anonymous basis, but I couldn't go through something like that so personal and not have a connection with the person. I wanted mm -hmm. to, to meet the person who was going to be our donor. I wanted to know 
that she was a good person. I wanted to get a sense of who she was. And it was also important for me that she'd be willing to contact, uh, she'd be open to contact in the future because knowing that we were gonna potentially have a child this way, you're creating another person who has their own thoughts, their own feelings, and is entitled to that information. So, you know, even though he wasn't interested in meeting our donor, I was, I think it took us a little bit longer to find a donor because you know, that those aspects of it were not something that everybody who signs up to be an egg donor is open to. Mm-hmm. And he let me take the lead on that and, and was really supportive from that perspective. So yeah, he's my rock. That's incredible. And it's just amazing to hear that you have each other and through all the difficulties and challenges and just, it's just very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you, honey. I love you. <laughs> So Hillary, I would love to hear um, if you could share a little bit about your daughter and where you are today. Sure. Um, So we have uh, a daughter, she'll be five in February. So I'm very glad to say using a donor did work and I will be grateful to our donor forever because without her, we would not have our daughter and she is absolutely the greatest joy in our Mm -hmm. lives. She's funny, she's smart, she's kind. She's beautiful. Um, she's a handful. Keeps us on our, <laughs> keeps us on, keeps us on our toes for sure. But it's been it's, it's been fun. I mean, it really I can't I can't imagine my life without her. So a part of our journey that has been very interesting for us, you know, in using a donor through the agency that we used, I found out that our donor did cycles for other people. And I have since connected with the mom of a set of twins who are who are our daughter's half-brother and half-sister. There's a website called the Donor Sibling Registry that I found out about through the agency. I signed up mm-hmm. for that. And you can search by the agency that you used and the donor ID and then it will show if anybody else has posted with a connection with the same donor and so when my daughter was about two I knew about the the registry I just it wasn't something that I felt like pursuing for whatever reason until my daughter was about two and so when I did that I I saw a message on the message board from from a mom who had uh, boy girl twins who are eight months younger than my daughter from the same donor mm-hmm. that we used, and you know that was I guess about two and a half years ago. We've since connected with that family. We've met in person. Our kids have spent time together. So you know that's really been something that I never would have expected out of all of this, but really that's been a blessing from my perspective. They're part of our extended family, mm-hmm. and so when you think about, you know, there's all these different paths to parenthood, and it really for me makes me think about how what what family is, and you know, and how it redefines how it redefines family. So we've been blessed and grateful for for that aspect of it. It's a, it sounds like it's just a very special, special gift and a path that you didn't anticipate going down and here you are. Right. And I'm just, I'm truly just very, very happy for you. Thank you. If you could go back and tell your younger self some advice, what would it be? You know, I think back to 10 years ago when I was two years out from completing cancer treatment and just getting started on our on the fertility journey and just I remember the uncertainty and when the idea of using a donor was first presented to us just you know the uncertainty that I felt and the fear hindsight's 2020 and so what I would what I would tell myself is to just 
have faith, hold on and get through the, hold on for the challenges, get through the the difficulties, the emotion of it. And the result is going to be so much better than you ever could have imagined. Mm-hmm. It won't be how you envisioned having a family or what your life would look like 10 years later, but it's incredible. It's a blessing. Thank you for sharing that. Really, thank you so much, Hillary, for being so candid and open and sharing your incredible story. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Nee, for allowing me to be a part of this and also for what you're doing with this podcast. I mean, it's so, it's so important. Looking back 13 years ago, you know, one of the, re- you know, we mentioned we connected through a local survivors event and, and also connection through the, the National Variant Cancer Coalition. The original reason I reached out to the NOCC was to connect with younger survivors mm-hmm. and just survivors in general because that support system is so important and what you're doing and in providing information and a, and a connection for people I think is, is so worthwhile and I, I thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. So in hearing your story, your journey certainly hasn't been an easy one, but it is one of hope. Thank you. As a friend, as a fellow survivor, and as a neighbor, thank you for empowering us to speak openly and to speak up about our challenges. I know others that are hearing can relate and just know that they aren't alone. So thank you so much. Thank you. I also want to take a moment to thank our listeners for being part of this podcast. Please share our podcast with others that you think would benefit, and please check out our website at speakgyno.org. We have added additional resource links, a take action tab, as well as a donation link for anyone who would like to support us. And as always, may we empower you, inspire you, and spark conversations. Mm